I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Today's guest is Dr. Robert Waldinger. Robert is famous for being the director of the longest study in history of human adult development, a study that started in Harvard University in 1938 and is still running today. He is also a psychiatrist, a psychoanalyst, and a Zen priest, a mix that is rare to find in the academic fast-moving, famous places like Harvard. You must have heard of the groundbreaking study, which I'm hoping to discuss with Robert at length today. But I'm also really, really curious about that idea of a Harvard professor being a Zen priest at the same time. So we're going to investigate this a little bit. Robert is also an author with two very successful books. He teaches medical students and psychiatry residents at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, and he is a senior Dharma teacher in Boundless Way Zen. Robert, thank you for coming and joining me. It's been a long time in the making, this conversation. Yes. <laughs> it's, uh, we know of each other. I adore your work, but it's actually really interesting because I, I, I researched you a lot when I was writing Solve for Happy and, and you know, your work is definitely incredibly eye-opening. And I researched you as a person and you're quite, how do I say it, quite hidden. You don't, you don't talk about yourself at all, do you? No, not <laughs> I want you to talk about yourself if you don't mind. I, I mean, I think a, a Harvard professor as a title is something that is so aspirational for all of us. But why would a, a Harvard professor also be a Zen priest? How did that happen? I mean, tell us your story. How did you end up in that place? Which came first? How did it work out? Ah, well, Harvard came first. I've been at Harvard since I was 18 years old. Wow. Okay. Um, I left my home in Des Moines, Iowa and, and went to undergraduate college at Harvard and then stayed. Stay, except for a year in England, I went to college, I went to medical school at Harvard, I did my psychiatry training at Harvard, and then have been on the faculty since then. And you're a practicing psychiatrist as well, are you? Yes, I am a practicing psychiatrist. I, I see patients every day. I'll see a patient this afternoon. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But the becoming a Zen priest happened later. However, when I was young, I had the sense that I worried about a lot of things that really didn't matter and that I cared about a lot of things that didn't matter and that it wasn't just me, that all my friends were that way. And, you know, things that don't matter like, like fame, for example, and status and all those things because it was very clear that we were all going to die and that most of us would never be remembered beyond one generation, and that would be okay. So why were we all so worried about these things, these, these 
badges of achievement, me, certainly myself. And, and I began to realize that this preoccupation with achievement and status and, and even fame was something that so many of us buy into and that it could really lead me away from having a life that was more meaningful to me. And what I found was that Buddhism was a really good place to look at that because Buddhism talks about that stuff. The first time I went to a Zen group, there's a chant called the Five Remembrances that goes, I am of the nature to grow old. There is no way to escape growing old. I am of the nature to have ill health. There is no way to escape having ill health. I'm of the nature to die. There is no way to escape death. So you chant that every time you do a chanting service in Zen. And many people come to that kind of meeting and run screaming out the door. I was just going to say. Exactly. And, <laughs> and, and my, my experience was, ah, people are talking about what's real here. You exactly. Know, it's the truth. It's the truth, and, and that, that it's the truth that instead of being depressing for me, for some reason, is exhilarating because it means, okay, this is really it. This is not a dress rehearsal. This is the only life I've got. So what is really important to me? And, and that's what Zen keeps asking me to look at over and over and over again. And so what I found, especially if you think about it, being a Harvard professor, I mean, that is one of the most status-laden things there is, at least in the academic world. And you could, you could get really lost in that. And, you know, Harvard professors are just like everybody else and have the same problems and the, the same joys and the same craziness, right? So the worry was that if I pursued this life at Harvard, which I have, that I would get lost that I would believe my own press, right? And that I might end up having a life full of badges that didn't really mean that much. So Zen keeps asking me to go back to what really means something. Isn't it, isn't it amazing that that same stimuli of I am of a nature that will die would make some of us scared and some of us celebrate? That stunning difference in my mind is something I struggle with explaining to people. I wrote a chapter about that idea where I was basically saying, death reminds you that life is just a rental, right? You're here for a short while. It's a beautiful place, okay? So what are you going to do about it? Are you going to think about what happens when you leave or are you going to think about what happens now? Are you going to be able to just look around you and enjoy that enormous blessing that is life. But, but others don't see it that way. I mean, others concern themselves with that nature of suffering, nature of decay, the, na the ever-changing nature of life. Why is that difference? I don't know. <laughs> I think it, you know, I don't know. I think it may have to do with our inborn temperaments, with, there are probably some genetic factors, certainly some early experiences that prime us to look at the glass as half empty or half full. And in, in this case, to look at life as a gift or life as a source of great suffering and great worry. And I think what 
what Zen did for me is what you're describing, which is it made me say, oh my gosh, today I feel pretty good. And today I can look at that tree right now outside my window and see this amazing thing, like all these leaves and these branches. And if I really look at the tree, it's a miracle. Now, Zen asks you to look at everything as though it were a miracle. And sometimes I can do that. And sometimes I can't. Some mornings I wake up and I'm I'm so preoccupied with trivia and with myself and with what's wrong in my life. But many times I can look at the most ordinary things, including my cell phone, and say, my gosh, what a miracle. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, so I guess what these kinds of practices, you know, like contemplative practices, meditation can do for us if we're lucky is they get us to look again at the ordinary stuff and say, oh my gosh, how amazing to be alive and to be able to be part of this. Mm. Zen specifically, I think, is probably, don't know how to say it, but it's, it focuses most on this of all traditions, right? So Zen is a lot more around that idea of being here completely, fully, right? You know, and it's different than other Buddhist, you know, path, if I, if I may use the word. Is it not? So that's even as the word in, it means in our hearts and, and, and minds when we hear it, it's being Zen is being here and now, being calm and quiet and peaceful and in harmony with nature. You know, being Zen has as a word that's gotten a phrase that's kind of gotten co-opted in our culture to mean very peaceful, very calm. Nothing ruffles me, right? But that's not actually Zen. Zen is being present for your life, including when you're really angry, just know that you're really angry and upset. Don't try to do a, a what we sometimes call a spiritual bypass. Don't try to get around it. Actually know, know it in its fullness. That doesn't mean you express it, right? So I won't necessarily spew my anger out at the world when I feel it. But to know that I feel it is, is a really important part of being alive. Otherwise, I become this kind of zoned out, pseudo sweet person. Nobody's calm all the time. Nobody's happy all the time. So, so anyway, so it's, a, it's just a way of saying that the way we use Zen in our kind of colloquial language is not the way Zen actually speaks about Zen. And do, do you, I mean, the, the idea of numbing our emotions, if you want, not, not, not just our emotions, but really numbing the moment, just because we're so preoccupied with other things, is, in my view, one of the biggest uh, challenges of the modern world, maybe one of the biggest diseases, if you ask me, of the modern world. And that practice of, of me trying to say, hey, by the way, I'm angry. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, it's okay. I'm, but I, I noticed I'm angry. And by the way, I know it completely. I may not, you know, I, I, I interviewed Arun Gandhi the, the, the other day on the, on the gift of anger, he calls it. And it's so powerful to understand that, yeah, there is a gift there. That's an amazing thing to acknowledge and to feel and to take that energy and direct it in the right way. It's so different than our perception of numb it. Don't feel it. There's, there's a Zen teaching that I find really helpful, which is basically the phrase, everything we encounter is our life. And that means we don't push anything away. 
We don't push anger away. We don't push sadness away. The- it's so interesting the way you said it actually translated into my mind as the aggregate of all of this makes up your life. You're not, you're not a life without them. Huh? Exactly. You're not a life without them. And the, the biggest worry that I had personally and that I think Zen points to is the worry that we could spend our whole life sleepwalking. And by that, I mean, you know, so sleepwalking for me is being in my car, commuting to work, and not even realizing that I got in my car, that I started driving, that I parked my car, that I got to the office. Suddenly, I'm in my office, and I've been asleep the whole time, wide awake and asleep. So what if, and and of course, there are some times when I sleepwalk through parts of the day, but now there is this sort of warning in my mind that says, oh, wake up, because don't sleep your way through your life. And that that's what Zen keeps calling me to, to do. Did, did, you, did you feel, so, I, so this is something, again, I wrote about, and I feel immensely in my, in my perception of time, that because I've started to practice so strongly to be present in every moment, pain or joy or just mundane passing through the world, by being present, I feel that time slowed down. Yes. The last six years of my life have been longer than the previous whatever years. Do you feel the same? Absolutely. And the way people might be able to notice this is if you think about a time when you went to a new place, like you might have traveled to a new place, and the first day or two in that new place can feel so long. It can feel exciting. It can feel scary, but it's long because there's a newness to it. And, and you're not sleepwalking at all because you're trying to figure everything out. And that sense of time slowing down or being expanded is, I think, what you're describing, where you're really more present for each of the things that you encounter during the day. And then life is much, much more stretched out. Yeah, it's, it's almost as if we only register the moments we actually live through and you only live through the moments you're aware of. Did you go, so, so to become a priest, this is a long journey of study and practice and so on. Did you, did you go into monkhood? Did you, you know, spend time away? I didn't go into a monastery. There are, there's a whole long tradition of becoming a Buddhist monk, becoming a Zen monk. In the West, in the United States, for example, there are many more what we call lay practitioners. So I'm a lay practitioner. I've never been a monk. I've never gone to a monastery. But what I have done is gone on silent retreats. So four, five, even six times a year, I'll go on a retreat with other people for two, three, five, seven days where we are completely silent, we meditate, we chant together, and it's an intensive kind of practice where you essentially watch your mind and watch your body and watch everything that arises over a relatively long period of time. And so it's a mini version of being in a monastery. So interesting that you come into my life now. So one of the, of, of the projects, I, wor- I work on my spiritual uh, you know, journey and my happiness and my state of presence and so on as an engineer would. So I'm, I'm very organized and structured. I identify what I need. And the project I'm currently working on is a project I call Half Monk. 
And half monk is the idea that I, I actually, in my heart, in my body, in my senses, I feel I want to retreat. I really strongly feel that. I feel there is something in silence that gets me uh, to where I seek to be. But I'm unable, because of the responsibilities I've assigned myself, one billion happy, you know, all of slow-mo and my writing and so on, I'm unable to sort of leave it all behind and disappear for three years. So I'm working through the possibilities of being like you, being engaged and active and impactful, but at the same time ascending in that spiritual path. And, and the way you split it, very eye-opening for me, is you basically would have intervals of the year where you're engaged fully as a modern-day warrior, as I call it, and then others where you disappear completely and switch off. Is, is that how it went? Yes. And most of the time, I'm in the world fully engaged. But several weekends a year, one or two weeks a year, I'm doing what you're talking about. I'm, I'm on retreat. And I'm in silence. I don't, you know, no cell phones, no email, nothing, no reading, except I, do, I will read some Zen texts because I do koan study. But other than that, no media at all. I, I do that every every other Sunday. Interestingly, I never thought about it this way. But I do what I call mini silent retreats, where where I I believe that our neuroplasticity works better with repetition rather than just long intense practices. And so so it really really works for me. Do, do you believe that that idea of abandoning parts of life, like you know abandoning relationships, abandoning you know the luxury of life? Is that part of the practice, or could we acquire that in ways that are, that are more fit with the modern world? I think we can do it in ways that fit with the modern world. Of course, I've never done it the other way, but for me, being in the world is really the true test of my practice, right? So sitting on a cushion and meditating in silence is easier. There's less stimulation, Everything is kind of narrowed down. And then it's easier to focus. It's easier to pay attention. But what about when my wife is telling me three things I need to do before nine o'clock tonight? And what about when I'm trying to answer an email that's really gotten me annoyed? How do I be in, the, in my life then and, and in my practice? So, so for me, being in the world is the is the point of my practice and the job is to bring my practice into my life mm. and use your life as the as the backdrop as the lessons for the practice that is so interesting which basically says to all of us listening that we can include those kinds of practices in our day-to-day -day life there's no excuse uh, to say i'm busy or i'm you know, it's stressful or whatever that is, we can actually make that part of the practice itself. We can. Now, there are lots of, there are lots of excuses, right? Because we are, we're busy. And, and the other thing that I find is really, that I want to put out here is that meditation doesn't work for everybody. So some people find that they cannot sit still and focus on their breathing or whatever the meditative exercise might be. They just, it just doesn't fit for them. And I'm really clear that that's okay. 
that there are other ways to find meditative practices that allow you to focus more deeply and and more microscopically on just whatever's right here. So, oh, it could be it could be yoga, it could be music. My wife is not a meditator. She never has been. Doesn't really it doesn't call to her. But she practices piano an hour a day and she gets transported by it. Yes. She loses, you know, she's she has a very cognitive job. She's she's a psychologist and she works very hard, but when she is in her music, she is transported into another place. And so I think the artists talk about this, visual artists. So I think that that if that finding a spiritual practice, finding a practice that lets you come into the moment is what I would wish for people, not necessarily that everybody sits on a cushion. Let's switch gears a little bit. Because even though I love that conversation, I need to tell people a little bit about your Harvard work. So you're the director of the longest standing study of adult development ever. It's now 1938 until today. That's 82 years, Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. so eight, 82 years you've studied. I'll, I'll ask you to, to describe it a little bit, but you've studied every walk of life in that study, uh, you know, from the poorest all the way to once the president of the United States. So, so t- tell us a little bit at a very high level, what did that mean? So you st- the study started in 1938, you're the fourth director of this study, still it's running the same way. What happened in those years? A lot happened. <laughs> so, <laughs> we, um, so the, actually the studies started out as two studies that didn't even know about each other. So one study was a study of Harvard College students. So if you think about it, the most privileged group, all young men from at least middle class families and usually upper middle class. And that was started at the Harvard University Health Service, the Student Health Service. The other study was was started by a Harvard Law School professor, Sheldon Gluck, and his wife, Eleanor Gluck, who was a social worker. They were interested in why some children from really poor, disadvantaged, troubled families, why those children managed to stay out of trouble, why they did not become juvenile delinquents, because they all started out with so many disadvantages. So these were the two studies. So actually, there are two extreme groups that got started. And then my predecessor, George Valiant, brought those two studies together and combined them and and said, let's look at the contrast between people raised in extreme poverty with terrible family problems and people raised with what seems like every advantage. And, and the contrast between them. So what, what did they study? They studied their path in life, their behavior, their health, their state of well-being? Yes. So, so they studied all the big domains of life. So yes, physical health, mental health, work life, So what did they do for work? How much money did they make? Did they get promoted? Were they satisfied in their work? They studied their relationships. So of course, most of them got married in that day and age. And so they studied marriages multiple times through the decades, but they also studied friendships. They studied religious attendance and volunteer work and sports and whether people took vacations. So 
every two years, we'd send them a questionnaire with all kinds of questions. And one of the questions was, have you taken vacations recently? So all kinds of all kinds of questions about the about life in general. Mm. And the aim was were just documenting their life. It wasn't aiming for a specific well-being result or longevity result or so the initial aim of the Harvard undergraduate study was to see how quote unquote the best and the brightest developed into fine upstanding young men right so it was and so because there had been so much focus on what was wrong in development on pathology that they wanted to study what went right supposedly and <laughs> okay. and not all of these harvard undergraduates had good lives and some of them had lives that went terribly wrong but that was the intention and the the inner city study the juveniles the non-juvenile delinquent study wanted to understand how these children who stayed out of trouble, how they grew up into young adulthood. Nobody dreamed that either of these studies was going to continue beyond, you know, following young men in their 20s. After that, everybody thought it would be over. But people kept continuing. My predecessors kept saying, let's keep studying people. Let's follow them again and again and again and go back to them. And so it was through the kind of doggedness of my predecessors that they kept this study going against all odds. And so, and then what did we find out? So your, your very, very famous, very eye-opening TED Talk that starts with 80% of young millennials, when you ask them they want to be rich, what's their number one priority in life? 50% want to be famous, but they should probably want other things. You know, <laughs> so this is not the right target. Yeah. Well, what we found was that, yes, uh, having enough resources financially was important. So you need to have your basic needs met. But that beyond that, the people who were wealthy were not happier than the people who were not wealthy at all. And in fact, the other studies have found that now, that the main thing we found, which we didn't believe at first, was that the people who were the happiest and the healthiest as they grew older were the people who were the most connected to other people and the most invested in good relationships. So they were the people who were volunteers in their community. They were the people who had happier marriages. They were the people who invested in mentoring younger people at work. They were the people people. And so that's what we discovered. We didn't, as I said, we didn't believe it. Because what we, what we didn't believe was that those people would be less likely to get heart disease or type 2 diabetes. Like, how could that be? Why should your relationships make a difference? And, and then other research studies began to find the same thing. So then we began to study the mechanisms by which relationships actually change us biologically so that the, it protects our health. And that's... That's a, been a big focus of our work these last five to 10 years. So it's not just the number of people you have in your life. It's the, what, the, the quality of the, what makes it a, a, a person a people person? Yes. And it doesn't have to be the number at all. So let's say I'm an introvert and maybe I really only want and need one or two friends. That's fine. Or maybe I'm an extrovert and I need to have 
you know, 10 people I see every week for drinks or coffee or to play basketball with, that's fine too. That it's not the number of people. It's really the quality of the connections. So what we think about is that relationships actually help us manage stress. They help us manage our emotions. They're emotion regulators. Like if, you know, if you think about it, when you're really upset about something and you talk to a friend who's just a good listener, you can literally feel your body calming down. And it takes us out of that agitated fight or flight response. And what we see is that if you have at least one or two really good quality relationships and and relationships where you can be yourself and talk about your life and what's important to you, that we find that that's what people need in order to preserve health and and well-being. Also, it doesn't have to be like a romantic relationship. It doesn't have to be a marriage. It's just a, a good person that you can let into your life. Exactly. Exactly. In fact, you don't need to be married at all for that. Mm-hmm. I, actually, I actually invite our listeners to think about that for a while. Because it's, uh, you know, I, I think many of us know a lot of people. But, you know, how often do you have someone that you go like, you know what, that's my buddy or that's my soulmate. Or yeah. That's someone yeah. that I can really, really connect to. And, and what you're saying is it's not only, it doesn't only impact on our happiness. It impacts on our health in a measured way. Yes, yes. We asked this question a number of years ago of our original study subjects. We asked them, who could you call in the middle of the night if you were sick or scared? Name all the people in that category for you. Some people couldn't name anybody, including their spouse. And some people had a list of several people who they felt they could do that with. Hmm. That's an incredibly interesting test. I'd, I'd probably put a post on Instagram and then the entire city will come say, hey, Mo, what's up? Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> the, 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 more, the more interesting side of this. So you see, we think about people as trouble, but you're saying deep, deep relationship are actually the cure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so- actually working through some of the trouble can be a cure. So not some relationships can't be salvaged. Some are really troubled and probably need to be stepped away from, but there are disagreements in all relationships. So finding ways to work out difficulties, that can be really growth promoting. Mm. Mm. But but this seems to be this seems to be going almost the opposite direction of where the world is going. The world is suffering more and more and more loneliness. I mean, I don't remember the actual number. One, it was one of every four people say when they're unhappy, they have absolutely no one to turn to. There was an America, a, a study based in America, which, which basically says you are literally gearing yourself up for heart disease. Yeah, yeah. For, for something like that, yes. So what, so what, what would you tell people? I mean, at the end of the day, it's, all, it's also not easy in today's world to, to build deep relationships. It's not the, it, you know, the, the internet is sort of building those barriers between us and others. You know, everyone is so busy. People sadly don't trust each other as they used to. You know, we don't say good morning to our neighbors as we used to. 
so what can we change? You know, if, uh, very practical layman's advice here. Huh? Uh, you know, yeah. if I if I'm listening to this and I go like, yeah, I understand. I want more people in my life. What would you tell them to do? Invest. <laughs> so. What I would say is that relationships don't just take care of themselves. So good relationships, including good marriages, good friendships, those friends you might have had from childhood even or from, you know, college or wherever, that those friendships, people you think will always be there for you, they may, but often life is so busy that it pulls us away from each other, even when nothing's wrong in the relationship. And so what I would say is that we have the power to make choices every day, every week, about whether we're going to invest time in relationships. So I think our listeners could stop and think, who would I like to go take a walk with? Even now in the time of COVID, who could I take a socially distanced walk with? And do I want to spend my Saturday afternoon cleaning out the garage or doing my email, catching up, or do I want to call this friend and say, let's go take a walk or, you know, have a cup of tea or, or something. And so the way that, that I've begun to think about it is almost like physical fitness, that there's a kind of relationship fitness that we want to think about where, you know, with physical fitness, you don't go to the gym once and say, okay, I've done that. I'm done. It's good. Right? <laughs> I'm done for life. <laughs> yeah, I'm done for life. So and, and we, we don't want to do that with our relationships either. And so, so the most obvious way, of course, is with a, a marriage, especially it's classic that when you, you know, when you're married and you have young children, the children have urgent demands and the, the married couple becomes like a great tag team, you know, but often that means there's no time just to the two of you to be together and to catch up. Similarly, with friends or even even a workmate, somebody you'd like to get to know better, to really reach out and say, let's, even talking on the phone, let's do something together. People are usually pleased and flattered and, and often surprised when you reach out in that way. This advice is gold, Robert. Honestly, it is really gold because it's very, very, you know, actionable. Basically... This is, this is one of the gyms that you go to. I, I always told people, go to the happiness gym, and as, uh, you know, not only to the fitness gym. You know, sometimes we, we go to the brain gym and turn, learn something for an hour a day. Go to, to the relationship gym. You know, plug time in your calendar. This is as, almost call it like the regular checkup, the medical checkup that you do, or the, or the, or the cardio that you, that you do just to keep yourself healthy you know, make it a point to have a few people in your life and get close to them by investing, by saying, hey, I think you're interesting. I'd like to spend more time with you. And, and it's as simple as that. And if it's, you rightly said, if it's toxic, walk away from them. But if it, but if it can be, you know, it can be grown and fed and, uh, and invested in, then I think we owe ourselves that investment. That's, this is gold. This is real gold. I have one more question, very personal, if you don't mind me asking it. But before I do, I remind everyone that if you're still there, then you love Robert as much as I do, which means you like slow-mo. So click the five stars. Not for me, I promise you. The mission of A Billion Happy needs you to participate by making others know that these wonderful conversations of my very wise friends are good for them, and that's the way to do it. 
Robert, a very personal question. You're, you're almost 70 now, right? You look 42 to me, like, damn it. <laughs> what's going on? Did you take your own advice or what's going on here? How did you do that? I, I, I don't look anything. I look close to 70. This is <laughs> No, but, you don't. I will put your picture on the yeah. screen for my for my listeners on, on on social media and they will see what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. But what I will say, because you're raising a really important point, and I and I talk about this a lot, particularly with the the people. So I see patients every day and I, I do psychotherapy. That's my specialty. And what we talk about a lot is self-care. And I've had to learn that for myself. That so I and self-care becomes more of a part-time job as I get older, right? So I really do, I have to exercise. I, I exercise every day now. I didn't used to. I, you know, I don't smoke. I don't drink much alcohol. I drink a little bit because I really enjoy it, but I don't drink a lot. And I do my best to get enough sleep. I mean, now, this sounds crazy. This sounds like your grandmother's advice, right? But, <laughs> but it's at really... All. But it's really important. And I think what we know from good research studies is that sleep and exercise, avoiding tobacco, not misusing alcohol or drugs, that these are really big pillars of well-being. And so even though it sounds trivial and yeah, yeah, I know it, that it's one of those things, again, that you can pay attention to every single day. And so what I would say is that if I... <laughs> If I look a little bit on the younger side of 70, it's probably because I it takes a, a fair amount of work each day and attention to it. And, and I think it's a wise choice. I mean, in a very interesting way, here is one more gym that we need to go to. But, but, but self-care is not that easy, let's put it this way, because it stems from self-love, stems from a, a connection to oneself that says, Thank you very much to this physical vehicle that's carrying me through the physical world. I really, really appreciate your presence and I want to take care of it, right? It's almost like, you know, buying that incredible Rolls-Royce dream car that you've ever always dreamt of. And then you keep cleaning it and polishing it and, you know, like making sure that the oil is changed and so on. And I think we sort of don't have that relationship with our bodies somehow. And I think it's difficult for some of us to get there. There's, there's a great quote that I like. It's an older person when asked about what advice he would give to the younger generation. He said, take care of your body as though you were going to need it for 100 years. <laughs> exactly. Maintain it as if you're going to need to switch it on and turn on the ignition every day. Every for day a while. for 100 years. Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. Oh, yeah. Easy, I think. Uh, and again, it's, it's about a choice. It's about us waking up in the morning and saying, I have, you know, 14 productive hours. Uh, some of them are going to go into my Zen practice. Some of them are going to go into my care for my body. Some of them are going to go into my relationship. Not all of them have to necessarily go into plowing our way through the world and, and watching Netflix. Well, and, and one of the things that I've found is that if I put those in first, if those are the first things in my day or the, the things that aren't movable, everything else finds a way of fitting in around it or not, or doesn't fit in. So I meditate first thing in the morning because otherwise I get swept up in the day. 
I put in time in my calendar for exercise. It sounds ridiculous, but it's the only way because then when I look at my calendar and people say, do you have time to do this? The exercise is blocked out. So I say, well, no, I don't have that time. And so it's a, I know it's a, it's a kind of behavioral trick, but for me, it works to really put some of these solid pillars into each day because then I'll do them. Totally. I, I call them, I actually put them in my calendar. I call them more time. So yeah. it's basically, it's my, it's my meeting with me. Okay? Yeah. So my, my meditation is my meeting with me. My exercise is my meeting with me. My reflection time is my meeting with me. My silence is my meeting with me. It's, you know, my, do- my time with my daughter is my meeting with me. And it comes into my calendar first. And if, you know, anyone lower than God asks for that time, I'll check with my daughter first. I'll say, hey, do you, do you mind if we move it to another hour? I'll check with my body first and say, are you still going to exercise at 7 p.m. if not 6? And those really, really make a massive difference. What an incredibly pleasant and wonderful and very, very, very useful conversation. I am so, so grateful, Robert, for your time. It's really wonderful. Well, I hope we'll get to have conversations in the future, Mo. I've really enjoyed this. I, I, I think we will. I think we will. And for all of you who joined us, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media. Search for Mo Gaudet, Slow Mo, Solve for Happy, or One Billion Happy. I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, there is always time to slow down. Until next time, stay happy.